Hey, Carl here. You know, keeping your development toolbox current is key to creating today's highly scalable applications. With Oracle Cloud, you get cloud-native microservices that leverage containers, Kubernetes, and serverless technologies. And right now, you can try a free self-guided lab to learn how to build microservices on Oracle Cloud infrastructure at your own pace. Visit oracle.com slash dotnet rocks. That's oracle.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's another geek out. Yay. Yeah. This was supposed to be the geek out for 2021. And then we started recording and went, this is a lot. (laughs) There's a lot here. (laughs) This is a lot. So we're breaking it into three pieces. This is actually the middle piece of recording, but we decided to publish it first because it was the most requested topic, the space one. Space geek out. Yeah, and then uh, yeah. we'll follow up in the next two weeks with uh, the pandemic, which ended up we've already recorded. It has an hour. Surprise! Yeah. I didn't expect it to be that long. And then the all the state of energy one will easily be an hour as well. So the pandemic will come out on the fourth. Uh, the energy geek out on the eleventh. Right. So yes, we are doing Tuesday shows as for well the next as couple Thursday of weeks. Shows. You're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Brandon's got to edit like six shows this week or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, he can edit as many as he wants. He's got some time now. That's why we couldn't drop him all at once. Give dropping a three-hour show on him is not any nicer either. Right? No, it's like, not very nice. So yeah, it's just if I'm going to be this long, if I'm going to be this long-winded, I we got to break it up. Right. All right. Well, let's start as we usually do with Better No Framework. Awesome. <laughs> What do you got? So uh, I just heard about this retool. What's retool. a retool.com? Yeah. It's for building internal tools. So you know how like you need a tool to, I don't know, migrate some stuff from here to there or go through a whole bunch of records and set a you know a, a flag or something that involves multiple data sources sure. and blah de blah. And they're, they're just throwaway projects, console apps that you write, you know, write once and run once. Yeah. Well, so this is a, um, a sort of a low-code approach. It's a GUI kind of thing. And you can basically build out these internal apps that, wow. uh, that, uh, that it helps you. And there's a whole bunch of... So maybe you know, an alternative to, to power apps, right? Maybe, um, although I'm not sure. I haven't used it, but, uh, uh, you know, internal tools to me sounds like the stuff that you write once and throw away, you know, stuff that's going to do some configuring or going to move some things from here to there or, you know, that kind of stuff. But you have to work on large sets of data. So rather than, you know, getting uh, this API and that API and uh, that kind of thing. I don't know. Check it out. Retool.com. Cool. There's a four-minute video. Uh, I watched it. I'm still a little confused, but I'm sure 
our smart viewers will uh, figure it out. My my end of year run as show, I talked about the fact that there there's this proliferation of low code solutions that are sort of cloud centric and work across different form factors and all that sort of thing. Right. And the proliferation being a sign that this is a problem that, that people want solved. There's demand for it and there's no good solutions yet. I think retool is another one. Yeah, it might you know, be. Yeah. Uh, Salesforce has lightning and there's like there's literally dozens of them. So it's interesting. Yeah. Cool, man. So who's talking to us today, Richard? Well, seeing how we're doing a Space Geek Out, I figured I'd rather go back to an old Space Geek Out and read a comment from it. So this is from 1486, wow. which was uh, October of 2017, back when we did one of these a month, because we yeah. were publishing three shows a week. What was wrong with us? And this was the SpaceX BFR 2.0 Geek Out. So yeah. this is after the... Elon was already talking about the giant ship he wanted to send to Mars, the interplanetary transport system. And then yeah. he scaled it back to the BFR for the big frickin' rocket <laughs> at version two. We now know it as Starship. It's been revised many times since then. Used to be airplane. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After that Jefferson guy, that guy. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. admittedly, this comment is from four years ago. This is from Rick Arthur. But he's referencing a thing. I actually wrote a really, really long, long response to him at the time, and it's a great read. Uh, mm -hmm. Rick Arthur uh this has been bugging me, and I thought if anyone could answer this, Richard can. I've been following mm -hmm. the launch of the Falcon Heavy. That was in the February of 2017, the first Falcon Heavy flight. And right. I was in awe of what they accomplished until I found out that SpaceX hadn't set any records with its Falcon Heavy. Not even close. Mm -hmm. and it's not, 50 years earlier, the Saturn V had the capacity to send twice the payload of the Falcon Heavy uh, into low Earth orbit. Which is absolutely true, and the and the Falcon Heavy has never even come close to lifting its maximum payload. Mm. So, with that in mind, why is the Falcon Heavy such a big deal? Is it just about the cost, or are we just one step closer to the BFR? It seems to me that in some ways we were just dusting off our forgotten advancements of the past. Mm. And you know, there hasn't been very many Falcon Heavy flights. There weren't any this year. There's supposed to be several next year. Uh, it is interesting. And and ba back then I wrote a long comment because I thought a long time about why are we so moved by Falcon Heavy? Remember that? Yeah, that was where sure. the test payload was Elon's Tesla Roadster, right? That's right. Yeah. With the little guy in the suit sitting yep. in the seat, right? And, and we all thought it was a Photoshop job. No, no that's really a Tesla in space. In space. It's with a suit. Yes. And, and I mean, all he just needed a two ton payload and it's like, hey, why don't we set up my old car? Like, it's got to be fun to be a billionaire. It's yeah, like, right. you know, what we could do instead of sending up a block <laughs> of concrete, let's send up my old car. <laughs> but I, I do think a, it, it was a bit of a hype machine. The landing yeah. of the two boosters was astonishing. I mean, yeah, just one of the pivotal moments uh, in history. Even more than the car popping out of the fairing with all the cameras on it, which was cool. Those two mm. boosters landing was unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, Especially since there were so many failed uh, landings. Yeah. But at that point, they, they, they'd they gotten the Falcon 9 landing nailed. They did lose the center core stage. The center core stage on that flight didn't landed in the ocean, which is to say fell in the ocean with vigor. <laughs> met the ocean in a hurry <laughs> and the fish went whoa what the hell was that yeah, what was that and it broke up into little pieces right 
Uh, and, you, you know, the funny thing is there's not a lot of demand for payloads that large, mm. right? There people, you know, the satellites have actually gotten smaller in some respects. Yeah. And so, and, and Falcon Heavy has got an interesting problem. Now, uh, did it help with BFR? No, not really. It's a totally different engine, different design mm. and so short. And we're going to talk about Starship in a bit here. But it, it was one of those moments, I think, that just let people know, like, the new era of space has arrived. This billionaire is really building spaceships. And look at this crazy thing that he's done. Uh, very much an indulgent. Is it far more cost effective? Yeah, you better believe it. It's more, it's more cost effective. Um, cost of more cost effective than what? Than any any other fifty tons in the fifty metric tons into space. I mean, yeah. th- th- at this particular moment, there isn't anything else that would lift fifty metric tons, right? There is no flying Saturn fives anymore. We wouldn't build one if we even if we could. It was actually a very violent, rough, dangerous rocket built mm. in a hurry, and it shows. Um, the the shuttle could only lift about 25, 26 metric tons. The Proton, I think, could lift 30. In theory, a full-spec Angara could lift close to 50. But And the and Soyuz again, rockets are not even in the same They're not in the right? same class, right? They're really yeah. – they're, they're, they're more Falcon 9 class. They're that 20 yeah. metric ton, which is – that's the normal payloads these days, right? right? There's just not a – they've stopped building bigger payloads because there just weren't rockets for it. So you – know, Now, do you think it – did he say that his primary motivation for making this thing so big is multiple round trips to Mars? Yeah, well, that's the BFR, right? At, the, at okay. this time, now known as Starship. Is that heavy, like big effing rocket? Is that what yeah, that stands for? that's what it stands for. <laughs> uh, you could go big Falcon rocket if it makes you happy. Yeah, whatever. okay. Um, but it's not. Now it's called Starship. But the, okay. the heavy is this odd duck. It now um, – the this, the this, the Air Force has bought a couple of pages on it now, the Space Force. There is, if they finally build that space station around the moon, one of the missions, uh, the resupply mission to the moon could be best served by Falcon Heavy. So there That's is no some moon. missions for it. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a space station. It really is. That's a space station. <laughs> anyway, Rick, you can see we're already tearing off into the show. But yeah, I do sorry. think it was one of those pivotal moments. And so mm. it, it affected us far more than we expected. I have kept the clip of the payload fairings popping off in the and the car being revealed. That car, mm. by the way, probably looks terrible now. They didn't yeah. specify that car in any way. It still mm. had air in the tires for crying out loud. Wow. Right? Like the solar radiation will have burned the paint away. The rubber should have basically crumbled by now. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be somebody. I hope at some point will find it and get pictures of it. It's not yeah. going to be pretty. <laughs> But Rick, thank you so much for your comment, admittedly, four years ago. And a copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish the shows there as well. And if you give me a comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. You know, the funny thing about tweets, they always land on their feet. <laughs> <laughs> it's all in the spine, man. All in the spine. I, Tweet I spines. Because they're, they're so light, you know? They're like liquid. They just fit in bowls and things. Okay. They're electrons. Electrons don't have – they don't have feet. <laughs> There's no feet on <laughs> electrons. <laughs> Sorry. I thought we were talking about cats. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. You want to talk some space? Yeah. Let's talk some space. Dude, it was an epic year for space.
2021, like it's not your imagination. It was an astonishing year for space. Yeah. And for most of us who are sort of head down writing code or doing whatever we do, we may, uh, some of this stuff may have passed us right by, including me. I wasn't yeah. really paying attention all that much this year to space. There is normally about a hundred flights a year. Like in 2018, there was 114, of which 111 succeeded. In 2019, it was 102, 97. You're talking about all nations. All nations worldwide. Uh, last year, 114 again, 104 succeeded. There were a lot of failures because a lot of experimental rockets going on. In 2021, yeah. there were 143 launch attempts. Wow. 133 succeeded. Wow. And that, even though it's 10 losses, many of them, were, again, were experimental rockets like Astra and things like that. Mm. So um, the number one flyer into space that flies the most payloads into space, China. Mm -hmm. For all those years, 2018, 2019, 2020. Um, so in, in 2021, China had 54 launches, of which 51 succeeded. Uh, the U.S. had 51 launches, 48 successes, and 31 of those were Falcon 9s. Wow. So the, the majority of the U.S. space flights these days are done by, by SpaceX. And Russia consistently does 20 or so launches. In 2020, they actually had, um, they only had 17. They're, they're financially constrained. But they resupply the space station and they fly Soyuz and so forth. And so, are, yeah. are most of these um, flights uh, commercial satellite uh, well, deployments and repairs and things? Military and commercial satellites. Military yes. and commercial. The, the, yeah. Those are those are the majority. There are a few, uh, you know, flights to for science purposes. I mean, again, China had an astonishing year in 2021. They they landed their first payload on Mars. They're only the third nation to ever do that, or third or fourth, depending on how you. Yeah, go. I remember um, hearing about that. They try to try and win one. Uh, so now they didn't have robots or anything like that. They they just landed on Mars. Oh, or they what? put a lander down and a rover. Oh, they did put a rover down. Oh yeah, they put a rover on Mars. They're Chinese are we going to do for, battle bots now or what? Yeah, uh, you know, Mars is a big place. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they're not. They're probably not likely to run into each other. It's pretty. pretty probably not. They're they're Chang'e four, the lander that landed on the far side of the moon. It's still running, thousand days on. Like they they're 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 uh, and it's on the dark working. side of the moon, far side of the moon. The dark, so it's not dark there. Okay, the sun shines on that side too. That's what when you. I don't know the difference. Between the far side and the dark side. So the moon, it's this, it's the same. It's just misnamed. The dark side is incorrect. If they, okay. it, during a full moon, the far side of the moon is dark. Oh, I see. During a new moon, the, the far side of the moon is lit. But the moon is in a uh, a tidally locked orbit with the Earth, which means the same face of the moon shows. Yeah, we see all the same time, face. I right? get it. But okay, the, the sun, you know, moves around on it. So the far so. side is not always dark. No. Yeah, when you can't see the moon, it's because it's lit on the, on other, the other side. side. That's right. Yeah, I get you. Uh, but it does mean, you know, in order to make the Chang'e 4 mission work, the, the Chinese space program also put up a satellite on the mm. far side of the moon to relay the signals from the rover back to Earth because you can't go through the moon. Right. So, uh, and, you, and just to finish up, like I'm not, this is not all about China, but I do want to bring this up because I'm mostly going to talk about the U.S. program, since it's the one we see the most, China launched their space station this year, right? The Tiangong space station, very much a similar design to the Russian Mir space station. Okay. They're, they're, they've, their uh, base control module is now up, very similar to the Russian uh, Salyut design. 
But uh, then they've had astronauts on it. They've been doing some spacewalks. They intend to add several more modules to it. So it's going to be assembled again, very much like Mir. But uh, yeah, China had an astonishing year in space. Now, do Russia and China both contribute or do either of them contribute to the International Space Station? China, because of ITAR restrictions, has no participation in the International Space Station. Hmm. Um, uh, obviously, the, the International Space Station came out of a detente between the U.S. and Russia to build a, an International Space Station with the Europeans and the, and the Japanese and the Canadians involved as well. All right. So, so you uh, got the International Space Station minus Russia and China. And no, Russia no, Russia's has... in the International Space Station. Oh, they are? Yes. Oh, okay. Right? Interesting. Um, and we're going to talk a lot about station event- eventually. But okay. Yeah, the, right now there are two manned space stations in orbit. There's the International Space Station, which is getting on in age. Um, and then there's the Chinese Space Station. Okay. But it's, in, it's an interesting reality that... That the the main contribution that the Russians made to the International Space Station was the the FGB, the main control module of the space mm. station, mm-hmm. which again based on the Salyut design. In fact, virtually every space station ever flown into space, with the exception of Skylab, the original American space station, based on a Russian control module, mm. for better or worse. So, but I, I I wanted to start this conversation off with just acknowledging that flight cadence is high, mostly due to the Chinese who flew an extra twenty or so. They've always been flying thirty or so flights a year. This year they flew fifty, but wow. the U.S. is also up. We're typically flying, uh, you know, post space station, they're running flying thirty, maybe forty flights, and they flew fifty this year. Wow! Uh, but again, a lot of them being commercial payloads, experimental rockets, things like that. Uh, Most commercial payloads can fly on U.S. rockets flying on Falcon 9s. Um, Falcon 9 had just a banner year, right? 31 launches in one year. So that's more than one a month, including at one point they flew two within 24 hours, one at Vandenberg and one at Kennedy. Wow. They had their 100th landing of a booster. Interesting. So, I mean, the, the booster thing works. Not, not not every time. Those 31 flights this year all had recoverable boosters on it. One of them failed. Hmm. You know, mission succeeded, but the booster didn't landed in the ocean with vigor. So uh, <laughs> something something went wrong and it went down. I know, and as I said earlier, no Falcon Heavies flew this year, although there are five Falcon Heavy flights planned for 2022. Hmm. But that wouldn't be the most exciting part of... Uh, what SpaceX is doing. Maybe we should save the Starship stuff for the end because it's sort of the most fun. Yeah, sure. You know, the Americans have other rockets that they're flying as well, right? I mean, we could start with NASA's rocket, the Space Launch System, the SLS. Yeah. That's the rocket that's derived from shuttle technology. That's why the main tank is gigantic and orange, just like the shuttle's tank was gigantic and orange. And as I've explained this before, Space Launch System would be a very super cool rocket if it was 1998. Yeah. But it's it's 2021. They're repurposing shuttle technology. It's been 10 years since shuttle stopped flying. They still haven't flown. Um, they're supposed to fly in 2022. But the current best accounting says that each flight of an SLS will cost about $500 million. Um, compared to a Falcon 9 flight that costs about... $50 million. Hmm. So it's hard to justify it. Uh, one would argue that the logical, if there's any, the main purpose of the SLS today 
now would be to fly the Orion capsule, which is arguably the most advanced uh, capsule that exists for deep space flight, for flight mm. outside of low, low Earth orbit. Yeah. Uh, so that might be a justification for it, but barely. It's If Starship starts to function, the new space of shot rocket, it's kind of going to go away. It just It's hard to justify. Are we going to talk about Starlink at all? We could talk a little bit about Starlink. I've got it. I've been using it. Yeah, no, we've we've talked about it just because you're using it on yeah. .NET Rocks. But uh, this uh, this is one of the f- events that happened that I I really know a little bit about. Mm-hmm. That it's a low orbit series of satellites that you yep. can actually see with your naked eye, can't you? When they're getting into position, you can. So. And they freak um, people out. I mean, they look like a a, a, a string, string of UFOs. Of yeah, and it, and it, and it, they're reflecting light from the sun. So in the series one launches, because they're now on to series two, uh, they would launch sixty to go, mm. right? And they're trying to be as efficient as possible. So the way they would fly them is after the Falcon Nine's first stage had finished and and it returned and landed quite successfully. The second stage would get it up to the appropriate orbit, which is around five hundred kilometers up. And then they would actually spin the rocket so that then, and then release all 60 at once. So they sort of spread out on their own. Now they're actually not at the full altitude that they're supposed to be at when they're deployed. They're going to use the, they're going to use some gravitational tricks, timing burns with their low powered thrusters on each of those satellites to get them into the orbits they're supposed to get into. So they're they're deployed lower and then they So they're they... deployed lower so that they hmm. actually orbit faster because when you are low you go faster. I know yeah. math is weird. Yeah yeah. Uh, uh and but as they as they spread out and at different points in their orbit you burn the engines a little bit and you can adjust their orbits to spread them into the uh the appropriate inclinations that you want. For uh, for all the satellites, the point here is that you want you're flying sixty at once, but they all need to be in different locations, spread along a particular inclination, mm. and so they do a series of, of orbital tricks to raise them to their correct orbits and be properly spaced apart. And while they're doing that, they occasionally reflect the sun, and that's mm. when you get those string of lights. Yeah. Once they're in their orbits and properly deployed. They've got anti-reflection materials on them so that they don't light up anymore. Uh, right. Because there are so many. Yeah. And I don't know if we said this, but the purpose for Starlink is to provide, and it is a SpaceX thing. Yeah. You know, the purpose is to provide satellite internet that goes around the globe. Yeah. So, I, but I, but the, it it's not without its criticism, in particular from scientists who use telescopes to look at things. Astronomers. Yeah. Yeah. That's have what they're called. That when they when the reflective versions pass through, it would damage their view, and so yeah. that's why SpaceX made modifications to remove the reflectivity to decrease the damage. Right. I'm not saying eliminate it because they're still passing through the view, so they may occlude a target yeah. uh, that they're trying to look at. That's relatively unlikely, but not impossible. It's, yeah, well, some they, of those exposures only- have to be long. Right, yeah. and so they have to to keep the shutter open for a long time, and so then if something passes in between you and the body you're looking at, which you know the the percentage of those things in the sky is going up and up and up. So, although I understand the planet's rotating, so even when you have a long exposure, you're continuously moving the telescope to try and keep it targeted. You, mm. you can only be so long; you can't slow the planet down for just taking a picture. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's still a low probability, and there are correction methodologies to deal with those things. And the reason this is this has always been an issue with satellites in general mm. 
It's just that before Starlink, there were about 1,500 operational satellites out of 3,000 flown. Mm. And with Starlink, they've now flown more than 1,500 satellites. Like they've doubled. Star, SpaceX is now the largest satellite operator in the world. They've flown more satellites than everybody. Wow. Uh, it's nuts. Now, they're a simple, small relay satellite for providing internet, not yeah. as sophisticated as geostationary satellites or Hubble or anything advanced like that. But okay. it's just a huge operator. I, it's good internet. You know, since the original matrix was filled in, I was getting about 150 down and 50 up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those speeds have continued to increase as they add more satellites and increase the relay efficiency. So it's an imp- continuously improving product. And the other thing you told me was that you sort of, you can't take it with you. Like you have to be in a permanent place and you yeah. have to have, currently you have to have a good, a damn good reason. Like you, there can't be any other options available to you, right? They, they In the beta, that's what they wanted. They want oh, okay. because it's not as good as terrestrial internet. If you've got fiber, yeah, there's use latency. fiber. Yeah. You know, gig, gigabit round trip fiber, or it's gigabit symmetrical. This is not that fast and not yeah. that low latency. It's pretty low latency because the satellites are low orbit. It's still, you know, 20, 30 millisecond, millisecond ping times. It ain't bad, right? This is not the geostationary 600 millisecond ping time problem. Right. I mean, right now we're using Zencaster and we're not, no- and you, I see your video and yeah, I'm not noticing any delay Everything's or lag the same, or- right? That's all terrestrial. Yeah. Right, we use land wires for a reason. Right, it's efficient. The hard, the hard part. So in the beta, they restricted moving the device, mm. and they restricted what areas they were going to use it. In. So I got it up at my coast place, which had relative. It does have cable. Oh, internet. okay. You're not using it now. No, I'm. Oh, I, I see. Yeah, I'm down in the city where I have really good internet. Yeah, my got cable it. internet, even on the coast, is faster than Starlink. Mm. But every time there's a windstorm, it goes down. Yeah. The hardest thing about Starlink is you need a clear view of the sky. Yeah. Right? Now, for a place on the ocean, that's not that hard to come by. Hmm. But if you're, you know, in the forest or anything like that, like, it won't work. You <laughs> need a clear view of the sky. Yeah. And that's just, not everybody place has that. But it won't go through buildings. It won't go through trees. You have right. to have that clear shot of the sky. Yeah. Okay. I think Starlink is super popular because ISPs are hated and, and SpaceX is not. Yeah. Like, that people are almost irrational about it. It's not just a buying it because I have no other choices. I'm buying it because I want to screw the man, right? Well, you know, speaking of that, and this is a little bit of a tangent, um, you think that portable MiFi, uh, you know, port, you know, wireless internet, for yeah. lack of a you know, from general word, based on cell connect, technology. based on cell connectivity, is is maybe on its way out. Well, maybe not now, but eventually. Yeah, I mean the. The rushing of the delivery of 5G was, I think, a response to satellite, the threat of that. The cell companies are trying to defend themselves by providing high, higher and higher speed access. Which kind of sucks, actually. Well, you know, 5G, 5G barely works because it doesn't go yeah. through anything. Right? Well, it works, but uh, you under certain conditions. Like, uh, you have to be in You have to have a clear line range, of sight to yeah, the antenna. Clear line of sight, right, all of that yeah. stuff. Yeah, Like, win- it won't go through windows, right? So... And that's what we like about those lower band options because the waves are so much bigger. They can go through yeah, concrete. They can go and through stuff, right? Yeah. The higher frequency, the less penetration you have. Right. But the higher frequency, the more data you could pack into a given cycle. Right. It's always the trade. There's, there's limits to everything, but there's a reason why fiber to the house, you know, fiber to the building is the, mm. the fastest. It moves yep. the most amount of data in the least amount of time. Yeah. Um, as much All as right. I didn't mean satellites. to distract you from. It's fine. What you're it's, doing. it's a great topic, you know, certainly worth addressing. 
Yeah. Uh, we got to run down the other spacecraft. Okay. Blue Origin. That's that Jeff Bezos's company. The, arguably the company he's now focused on because he's retired from being CEO of Amazon, although he's still chairman, so I'm sure he's still involved. Uh, Blue Origin just, I mean, they've done their suborbital hops in New Shepard, which is cute. I don't know but, what that means. What's that? So, so Blue Origin built a rocket called Blue Shepard. Are you talking they, about his trip to space that yes, everybody for four you know, throws mud at him at four? Yeah. Well, he, it is, you know, if you want to talk about a billionaire's play thing, this is a billionaire's play thing. Right. Like if you want to experience free fall, you can take a ride on an aircraft that will yeah. do this for you. The vomit for a couple comet. of thousand bucks, right? The vomit comet is what that what it was called by by the NASA astronauts at the time. But yeah. you know that's a service you can take on for a few thousand dollars, and you will have you know twenty seconds or thirty seconds of free fall repeatedly several times over the course of the flight. Right, right. Or you can spend two hundred fifty thousand dollars to go up in this rocket for four minutes. Yeah. Eh. You know, and and then there's Virgin Galactic's version. This is Richard Branson with Spaceship yeah. Two, which the flight's longer because it's got wings. Mm-hmm. It takes time to get up to altitude, and so forth. But you get about the same amount of free fall in the end. Mm-hmm. It's still kind of the same thing. Mm-hmm. Those are the toys, right? And whenever I've tried to, people are confusing all these billionaires and going, "Well, what's the difference between Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos and and Elon Musk?" It's like only one of those vehicles goes into space. You know, right. New Shepard is 20 meters tall. Uh, Falcon 9 is 70 meters tall. Yeah. Because the going up part isn't the hard part. It's the going fast enough to stay up. Yeah. That's the hard part. Yeah. Right? And that's the, that's the difference between these things. Uh, mm. Getting into orbit's hard. And Blue Origin has never brought put anything into orbit. Now, right. they've been developing a big rocket, a rocket called New Glenn. Hmm. That's uh, a seven-meter rocket. So I'm talking about the diameter of the fuselage. Hmm. Falcon 9, this very successful rocket that's got 100 landings and so forth, is 3.7 meters in diameter. Wow. Now, why? Why is it that diameter? Because that was the size that would fit on roads still. Hmm. Uh, Elon wanted to build his rockets in Hawthorne, California, and he needed to fly them either at Vandenberg in California or at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And that means moving them. And if you kept it at 3.7 meters, you could move them by truck, which is a lot cheaper than sending them by barge through the Panama Canal yeah. to get to Kennedy, yeah, right? Yeah. The downside to only being 3.7 meters wide is you can only put so large of a fairing on it, so you limit the size of the payload, mm. and you can only – and there's a thing called the finest ratio, a limit to how tall a rocket can be. The typical finest ratio is 15 to 1, so 15 times taller than its width. Hmm. That's kind of before you get into what they call angular moment problems. It's so long that it starts to flex in flight. Flex yeah. bad. Like, you don't <laughs> want that. Yeah. The Falcon 9 full thrust, the current most advanced version of the Falcon 9, the one they fly to the space station and so forth, yeah. is at 18 to 1. It is very long for its width. Hmm. And so Blue Origin building a seven meter rocket just opens the door to a lot more lift. It could be a lot more powerful being seven meters wide. It doesn't have to be quite so tall. The problem is we've never seen one. We have hmm. seen one mock-up in all the years that they've been working on that. That they've now they, they back in uh, in in 2019, uh, Blue Origin started building a facility in the Kennedy Space Center. A great big thing with this is Blue Origin. So I was supposedly where they're building New Glenn. Uh, there finally have been some photos, and and they they kind of took out their. 
It's not even a prototype. It's basically a, a form of the rocket and hmm. drove it around the Kennedy Space Center site to make sure that they could move it hmm. horizontally through the site to get it to the launch stand. Okay. Uh, they swore they would be more, they'd be flying in 2020. We haven't seen anything. It's now 2021 is over. We still haven't seen anything. Hmm. And over and over again, we're hearing the same pacing item, the engine. So Blue Origin makes their own engines. The engine that flies on on the new Shepard rocket, the Litter rocket, is an engine called the BE-3. And it's, hmm. by all accounts, a very efficient, very small Hydrolox engine. Runs on liquid hydrogen and oxygen. The BE-4 is supposed to be a 500,000-pound thrust-class methalox engine. It runs on liquid methane and liquid oxygen. That's a very powerful engine. That's as powerful as the best Soviet engines, as the best American engines. Save the F-1. The F-1 from the Saturn V is this ultra-powerful, relatively inefficient engine um, that will never be built like that again. Hmm. Uh, and SpaceX has their equivalent, an engine called Raptor. That's a similar kind of thrust also a methalox engine, then hmm. uh, all of these engines are having problems. The B4, just we really haven't seen much about it. Now, Blue Origin's always been a secretive company. Yeah. Uh, they, and so they're, they're not, they do the opposite of what Elon's been doing at SpaceX, where he's been doing everything in public, which is fun to watch, but it means lots of explosions. Right. Which is also fun to watch. Yeah. But there's a big deal with the BE4. It's not just that it's holding up New Glenn. Um, which, you know, we'd really like to see New Glenn. That could be quite a compelling rocket. But it's also ho holding up the United Launch Alliance's new rocket called Vulcan. Hmm. Before you talk about Vulcan, maybe we should take a minute for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. You know, keeping your development toolbox current is key to creating today's highly scalable applications. With Oracle Cloud, you get cloud-native microservices that leverage containers, Kubernetes, and serverless technologies. And right now, you can try a free self-guided lab to learn how to build microservices on Oracle Cloud infrastructure at your own pace. Visit oracle.com slash dotnet rocks. That's oracle.com slash d-o-t-n-e-t-r-o-c-k-s. Hey, Carl and Richard here. As you may have heard, NDC is back, offering their incredible in-person conferences around the world. And we'd like to tell you about them. NDC Security Oslo has been rescheduled to April 3rd through the 6th. Go to ndc-security.com to register. NDC London has been rescheduled to May 8th through the 12th. Go to ndc-london.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is March 14th through the 17th. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto is happening April 24th through the 28th. Early bird discount for NDC Porto ends February 1st. Go to ndcporto.com to register. NDC Minnesota is happening September 27th through the 30th. Go to ndcminnesota.com to register. Check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. It's a geek out. Richard is geeking out about space. What happened Spacey in 2021? Yeah. You just mentioned Vulcan. Yeah. So, so United Launch Alliance is a company formed in the 90s to take care of the space shuttle. Uh, and it all, but it also owned what was called EELV or the uh, Evolved Launch Vehicles. Okay. It, so that was the rockets known as the Atlas V and the Delta IV. These are largely rockets from the 80s, uh, mostly developed in the 90s and been flying ever since. Very reliable, very expensive rockets. Mm. 
Uh, and the, the, in the case of the Atlas V, dependent on a Russian engine known as the RD-180. Hmm. So with Falcon 9 on the scene, the demands for the Delta IV and the Atlas V dropped off dramatically. And, and ULA has responded by developing a more modern rocket called the Vulcan. Um, taking the best of their previous rockets, like the, the Centaur upper stage that comes from the Atlas V, which is by all accounts a phenomenal upper stage, and then adding in a more modern rocket design. Mm-hmm. And so they uh, had a competition for what how to build their, their lower stage for the Vulcan, and mm-hmm. Blue Origin won the engine contract with that same BE-4 engine. Wow. So the BE-4 engine delays are not only holding up New Glenn, they are holding up Vulcan. Uh, um, so there, you know, that's part of the problem here is that they both these things are delayed. Uh, I'd be remiss not to bring up one other issue. And we talked, we talked a little bit about the Falcon nine with crew dragon in the 2020 geek out, right? Which is a big deal. This is Americans now flying Americans into space again. Right. It's been a long and, time. Yeah. It's been since 2011. Took them yep. 10 years, right? But now it's, if you ever go watch a Crew Dragon flight, it's routine, man. The Falcon 9 does its thing. There are four passengers on that capsule. The booster stage lands because it's a Falcon 9 and it goes up to the space station. Works like a, like a charm. There's been three of them so far. Wow. Uh, to the point where even the Russians are now, you remember after the space shuttle stopped flying, America bought seats on Russian Soyuz to go to their, to the space station. Yeah. I remember you said that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now Americans are flying themselves into space for less money than the Soyuz, and the Russians have now bought a seat on a fall, on a on a on a Crew Dragon to send one of their cosmonauts up to the space station. Wow. Things are different, but there was a competitor to Crew Dragon. NASA was very sensitive to this idea of we don't want to be dependent on one crewed vehicle. We want to have two, and so Boeing developed a vehicle called the Starliner. Nominal, Starliner is a classic capsule design. It looks very much like Apollo and Orion. The Apollo from the from the uh, um, space from the the moon landings back mm-hmm. in the day. Mm-hmm. Orion's a bigger version of this, and this is sort of in between. It's a bit smaller than Orion, but bigger than Apollo. Mm-hmm. Same thing, able to should be able to fly four people in space. Mm-hmm. It's had one test flight where it failed to reach the space station. There was nobody on board. It was just a test flight. Mm-hmm. They almost lost control of it. They were able to recover it. Uh, mm-hmm. There were serious software problems. Like it, it, it may have worked better if there'd been somebody on it because they could have run it manually. Mm-hmm. But it was a fairly significant failure to the point where NASA and Boeing simply agreed we have to redo that flight. Wow. And they attempted this year to redo that flight in July, got to the launch pad, and had problems with some control systems bad enough that they rolled back from the launch pad. Then ended up having to disassemble the rocket. The Atlas V that was going to be used for that was in use for something else. Mm. And they're still trying to figure out how to get a, a Starliner to fly. So it's it's kind of a debacle to the point where NASA's now moved the set, the astronauts that were supposed to fly the first flight on Starliner. Yeah. Have now been moved to Crew Dragon. Ah. So I don't know what's going to happen with Starliner. Like it's it's not a good situation. Um, one more thing on the rocket side, and then I want to talk about other missions. Okay. First, and this is another Falcon 9 story. It's a flight called Inspiration 4. It happened in September. I don't know if you remember it. Okay. It's the first real, genuine, honest-to-goodness space tourism mission. Ah, we knew this was coming. Yeah, this happened, right? So uh, a fellow by the name of Jarek Eisenman, a fellow billionaire, because it's a club, 
a guy who created a company called Shift4. Uh, he's He is a bit of an adventurer. He has a collection of, you know, you're a billionaire, right? What are you going to do? Right. He has a collection of military jets. He holds the world record for flying a light jet around the world. But whenever he's done these kinds of adventures, he's always raised money um, okay. for charities, right? He's done stuff for Make-A-Wish and things like that. And so he decided that he wanted to fly uh, into space. And so he he uh, rented a Crew Dragon, which is a couple of hundred million dollars, but, you know, billionaire. But the way he did it was he uh, did a fundraising uh, for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Oh, nice. And so, and he had a competition to fill the other three seats. He's going and he wants three people to come with him. Now, uh, two of them he selected straight up and one of them actually was a raffle to raise money for St. Jude's. They raised $100 million. And then um, Jared has uh, even matched that with another $100 million. So, wow. you know, St. Jude's made out for this. Um, the first person that he picked was a, a lady by the name of C.M. Proctor, who was very, uh, who's a science communicator. Brilliant, great, great videos. She's fun to watch. Teaches planetary science in uh, in a university. Um, she entered the. She made the final selection in NASA astronaut. Uh, made it right to the final round in two thousand nine. So she was very nearly a NASA astronaut anyway. Hmm. Um, and then uh, the the second or third person uh, was Haley Arsenault. Uh, Haley Arsenault um, was uh, a survivor of bone cancer. She wow. was treated at St. Jude's as a child, as wow. part of her knee replaced. And went on to be a physician's assistant at St. Jude's helping kids with bone cancer. Nice. Uh, and adorable. Like just the yeah. nicest person in the world. Like she's been through some stuff. It's so nominally story. she's on the flight uh, as the as the um, the, med- the skilled medical person. By the way, she's now left St. Jude's and now works for SpaceX wow. since then. But she was the third person. The fourth one was the raffle. And, the, and this, I love this story just because <laughs> – uh, the guy who won it didn't want to go. <laughs> so okay. he gave the ticket to a friend of his, a guy named Chris Zimbrowski. Uh Chris worked for Lockheed Martin. He used to be in the Air Force. He's a volunteer for private space flight. He works at uh, space camps. Like he's totally into space. Yeah. And what I loved about Chris the most is he's us. He's a space geek. Okay. And so when you see him in his training, he looks nauseated most of the time. <laughs> Like astronauts are weird humans, right? <laughs> like, right. They're very driven, uh, very controlled, and they get through some fairly horrible stuff. I think Chris had a hell of a time of it. Like it was hard work to get ready for that flight. They did a lot, and all of that, you know, free fall stuff. Like it was tough, but they did it. And the four of them went up. We haven't seen all of the footage yet. Even months later, um, the main thing that they changed on the Crew Dragon is they took the. Um, the docking adapter off of the spacecraft because it wasn't going to the space station and replaced it with a big plexiglass dome. So they had these amazing views in mm. space. Mm. Um, normally the, the flight could have stayed up for a week, but they only stayed up for three days. There were problems on board. Okay. Um, the thing to understand is you're in a room, right? <laughs> like, okay, you're all in your seats. You've gone up to space, took eight, eight minutes or so. Now you're in orbit. You're in a one room. Right. The bathroom's mounted to the ceiling. Not that that means a whole lot, but the bathroom is, you know, basically a set of tubes with a bit of a curtain around it. So I hope you're comfortable with your fellow astronauts because you're in a room. <laughs> anyway, the toilet leaked. Oh. Um, it's, there's, it's questionable as to whether the toilet was ever used much before this, just because astronauts are the, are, are pretty intense and yeah. may not have ever bothered to use the toilet until they got to the space station. Right. So this is the first time that's like, 
regular closer to regular people on board and and yeah so they had they had some problems on board nothing serious not a huge crisis but i think you know it was certainly experienced they got some great footage but mm. classic first tourist run there are going to be some issues okay all right let's move on i want to talk about some of the great uh, science missions that have happened this year starting with the DART mission, which only launched back in November. I don't know if you've heard of this one. This is arguably one of the very first missions to actually address the issue of protecting the Earth from an asteroid impact. Oh, no, I haven't. So the, what the, the DART mission is a relatively small uh, spacecraft, and what it's going to do is it's going to deliberately collide at velocity with vigor, as they say in the space <laughs> Uh, space world um, with a very small asteroid. So okay. there is a binary asteroid system called uh, Didymos and Dimorphos. Although Didymos is the bigger asteroid mm -hmm. and it orbits close enough to the earth on a regular basis that it's easy for us to take images of it. Um, Dimorphos or something we call it Didymoon is a very small asteroid that orbits Didymorphos. Okay. Okay. So the goal is to sometime in 2022 have DART impact the smaller asteroid. It's going to be moving at about six kilometers a second, which is hauling if you were in the atmosphere. Right. For space, it's you know only so fast. Now, you know, the concern is hey, you're gonna go ram into an asteroid. Make sure you don't hurt us, like don't <laughs> cause it to collide. But you know, the real math here is this is hundreds of I mean, several hundreds of metric tons of asteroid that's going to be hit by a 600 kilo, uh, 600 kilogram at, uh, spacecraft at six kilometers a second. The expected change in orbit is one millimeter per second. Wow. Now, the reason they're doing this this way, like the, here's the question. If an asteroid was headed for the Earth, could we impact it with enough spacecraft or enough force to change its orbit enough that it misses us? That would be the goal. Right. Right. And uh, we know that uh, we've heard in the past that uh, you don't want to blow it up because then it just creates a lot of baby asteroids that now you've got many problems. Well, possibly. I mean, the smaller pieces might burn up in the atmosphere too, but this it's an interesting path. The main thing here is can we move it? Mm. You know, starting with, is it structurally intact enough to actually be hit? Yeah. You know, some of the other experiments we've done in the in the past collecting um, samples from asteroids, they've just been rubber piles. They're not even intact, not solid enough that you could even hit them. And so that's one of the questions is, is, is the Diddy moon uh, intact enough that you can actually change its orbit? Because it orbits around Diddy mouse and we can image it well, we can tell if the orbit's been changed by the impact. It'll be easy to do those measurements. And it's only going to change it a little bit, but we've measured its orbit very precisely now, so we know very well how it's been, how much it, what its current orbit is. So we should be able to measure it after the impact to see the difference. There is a, going to be a, a little Italian small set attached. It deploys several days before the impact, so that it can take a video of the impact and transmit it back before it flies off into space and be lost forever. Okay, but I mean, this is this is another basic advancement in, in civilization. We're starting to build tools to defend our planet from impacts. Right. It's inevitable. It's progress. And yep. it's exciting progress. So that's going to be later this year in 2022. You'll see that. So I'm very excited about it. That's very cool. Should we talk about Perseverance? You asked me about Perseverance. Yes, let's talk about Perseverance. So this is the follow-on to the Curiosity rover. Right. flew a few years ago. 
Uh, it is a it is basically built on the spares. They 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 built you know backup units. So they they take what they learned from Curiosity. There were a few problems with Curiosity, problems with the wheels and things like that. Mm-hmm. They did some upgrades. They added some new instruments. It's actually slightly heavier, about two hundred pounds or so heavier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it landed on Mars in February twenty twenty one, and it had a helicopter board. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. The Ingenuity helicopter, which worked. We liked it. It was a second secondary payload, but it, this idea of building a little flying scout. I mean, what's hard about a helicopter on Mars, yeah, the gravity is about one third of Earth. That helps. But the air pressure is like one tenth of one percent. Yeah. So there's not a lot of air to push your rotors against. So the rotors have to spin very fast, but it did absolutely work. Um, what's cool about Perseverance is that it is very much targeted at finding biological life on Mars. Now, either the, uh, either if they, it's actually there, that would be cool. Mm-hmm. More likely is traces that it once existed. Yeah. And so they landed it in the Jezero crater. Okay. The Jezero crater has, uh, was uh, filled with water at one point or another. It's, they're now in, in the, the year that it's been there, the past few months it's been there, they've actually moved on to what they believe is a sandy delta okay. that was formed by water flowing on Mars. So the hope being that they can actually find traces of microbial life. And they mm-hmm. have a whole set of sensors for detecting, for analyzing minerals, detecting organic compounds, do chemical analysis, mm-hmm. uh, even a ground penetrating radar so they can look through a shallow part of the surface and see if any structures are under there. That's really cool. But I would... I would argue the coolest thing on Perseverance uh, is the MOXIE payload. What's that? MOXIE stands for Mars Oxygen In-Situ Resource Utilization Experiment. Creating oxygen from the atmosphere? Making air on Mars. Wow. So it's small. It's less than an in, it's less than a one-foot cube yeah. uh, it's, and, and light, but it literally has the chemical tools inside to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere and separate the carbon off. It runs really hot, about 800 degrees centigrade, like... 1500 Fahrenheit. Wow. So, you know, wear gloves. But, um, and it, it did its first run in April, uh, of 2021, and it produced five grams of oxygen from the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So that is genuine in situ production of a resource on another planet. Wow. They're going to run it a few more times over the, the Martian year, which is about two Earth years. Because the the client the uh, season changed, they want to see if there's differences. So over they'll run it over and over again to build up the body of knowledge that we can really produce oxygen on mm. the surface of Mars. Wow. So again, another milestone for civilization that we're we're getting serious about in situ resource. Pretty awesome uh, utilization. Yeah. Okay, one more mission. It's not all of them, but it's one more that I think is super important. And this is uh, I got a message from Clint McGuire. Uh, who's a listener to the show, Okay, who said, hey, if you do another geek out on space, I'd love to hear more about the James Webb Space Telescope. Well, that's the obvious one because it's just, it just launched. Yeah, yeah December 25th. Yeah. Uh, and you and I met it. You know, we I met, know. saw it in person I back know. in the day. That was pretty and, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's astonishing that we, you know, that was, I did that Space Telescopes show and uh, then, you know, NASA called. <laughs> yeah, as they do. <laughs> as they sometimes do. Uh, but that, and that was back in 2013. Holy man. And right? if I remember correctly, they wanted you to, um, because you had such a dis- diverse knowledge from all these different departments, they didn't really know what each other department was doing. They wanted you to talk to all of them at well, the that same was time. The, that was the moon base. Oh, the uh, moon base thing. Yeah. 
The Space Telescope one, it was more because I did talk about Compton and Spitzer and Chandra and like a bunch of the other. And that was, Most people only know Hubble. That was one of right? those days where I was really proud to be your friend. <laughs> All the other days, I'm like, oh my God, Richard. Yeah, he's such a geek. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's like, hey, would you like to come and see a Space Telescope? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I think I would. That'd be awesome. But it, you know, it also speaks to how I mean, James Webb was in development for so for 20 years. Yeah. They spent over almost ten billion dollars on it. Like yeah. at one point, there was they were talking about twenty five percent of all of the money spent on astronomy in the United States was going to the James Webb Space Telescope, like five hundred mil, million dollars a year for twenty years. It's way over time now. Admittedly, what they were doing was unique, right? Yeah. They've never made a space telescope this big before. They've never made a space telescope that wasn't shrouded. You no, know, if you think about a normal telescope like Hubble. It's a cylinder with a mirror inside. Yeah. But James Webb needed to be so big, there was nothing that could carry it with a shroud. So they made a, a heat deflector shield, right? Yes. And this thing, I know about this because I listen to NPR. Uh, this uh, heat deflector shield, what I know about it is it's made, uh, it's really, really tight like a drum head and it's bouncy and and but it also has segments to it so that much much like a bulkhead in the the, the multiple hull of a of a ship yeah if one of them busts it's not going to rip the whole thing no they, and they, you're right they've put reinforcing in places so that it could get a hole from a micrometeoroid and, and perhaps still function they don't know for sure right um it's very so here's the goal so the hubble space telescope was an opportunity essentially mm. right they they the NSA uh, had an extra spy satellite chassis. Actually, had a few. And they said, hey, do you want one? Mm. And they turned it into a space telescope. And it had its own problems, if you recall. It yeah. With a mirror incorrectly grounded, and they had to correct it. And yeah, so forth. yeah. A great demonstration of the powers of the space shuttle to go up and retrieve and modify and improve it over years. And it's you know, there's no shuttles anymore, so there's not going to be any more work done on the, on the Hubble. It's it's going to last a few more years, hopefully. Yeah. It's, had, it's had its problems. It's very old. Yeah. Designed for a 10-year lifespan. It's at 26 or 27 years now. Like, right. Go Hubble, go. But it was it is an optical telescope designed to collect visible light. It, it's, right. it dips a little bit into the infrared. Yeah. But it's named for Edwin Hubble, who is the astronomer who proved that the universe is still expanding. Right. Right. That this was a big debate. You know, we've been studying our universe for a long time. This is where the theories around the Big Bang came from right. and so forth. And so they've been looking at expansion all this time and showed that not only is the universe expanding, it's actually accelerating, which right. makes no sense. Like we still don't understand everything. Maybe that's what dark matter does. Well, yeah. Accelerates the universe. That appears to be the case. And dark matter is sort of this catch-all for the stuff we don't understand. The stuff we don't know, yeah. So the most important missions of Hubble, the ones that I think had the largest impact, and you, remember, you remember, probably remember this, were the deep field experiments. Yeah. Where they aimed the, the, the telescope at a dark piece of sky. Right. For days. Yeah. And they found galaxies. Yeah. Ancient galaxies. Uh, the oldest they found, they, they thought that Hubble would only be able to peer back as far as the to about tw the universe is about 13 and a half billion years old. They figured they'd get about 12 billion years, 12 and a half billion years old. That, that they'd be able, that was far back that they'd be able to look. They got lucky. They, uh, Hubble actually found an object they figured was formed only 400 million years after the Big Bang. Wow. Um, which is, they, but 
interesting effect of this. When you when you back up to the 400 million years after the Big Bang, the universe was much smaller. Yeah. And as the universe expands, everything stretches to deal with that expansion. Sure. Including light. Yeah. So what they were probably seeing was um, distorted light. Distorted light that's very red shifted. It's shifted down the spectrum, right? Higher frequency visible light is blue, lower frequency visible light is red, and mm. then it falls into the infrared. It goes below the visible spectrum and into the infrared. So that's why they needed another telescope to be able to peer back into infrared. Right. So we want so to the, go back to the Big Bang with James Webb. Well, what they're hoping for with James Webb is to get back to 200 million years after the Big Bang. Yeah. And because everything's stretched out at that point, it's going to be in the infrared range. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been other infrared space telescopes, Herschel, for an example, and, and Spitzer. But they are smaller, yeah. and they don't see as deeply into the spectrum. Right. So James Webb, over these 20 years of development, is how to build a massive mirror. It's six and a half meters across mm-hmm. versus two and a half meters for the for the Hubble. Right. Three meters, so three and a half meters for Herschel. Mm. A six and a half meter reflector. Uh, but in order to see that I- infrared light, it can't have any heat on it. That's right, yeah. So they have to cool it down tremendously. And the goal was to do as much passive cooling as possible. They want to get 10 years worth of observations out of it. And you can't have uh, a a coolant system running the whole time. You'll run out of coolant. Mm. And so they've done this by building that massive heat shield yeah but also by positioning the satellite at the l2 point of the earth sun system so lagrange points are these somewhat stable gravitational places oh interesting so between between two large objects you won't be pulled in one direction or the other exactly uh, or you'll be you're pulled so little it takes very little fuel to station keep. You oh, can nice, stay there. nice. So the L2 point is about 1.5 million kilometers away from the Earth. Hmm. And the reason they pick that point is that way the Earth and the sun are always in the same direction from the satellite. Oh, so they can put the shield side towards the sun and leave it there. Right, and it blocks the heat from the moon, the Earth, and the sun. That's why it's there. Brilliant. Now, it still has to station keep, and that's actually the time limit for the James Webb. What does station that keep mean? It needs to burn fuel to stay in that position. Oh, I see. So the expectation, they've done all the calculations, that is roughly every 25, 26 days, they're going to have to burn a little fuel hmm. to keep it at the L2 point. Okay. And so they, based on the amount of fuel they've got, they figure they'll get 10 years. Now, they may learn how to burn less fuel. And it's so far away, there's no way we're sending fuel to it, right? Well, probably not. It's a long way away. We are developing robotic refueling systems for geostationary satellites. We've actually sent a spacecraft up to a geostationary satellite and attached to it to continue to use that satellite. Well, it's going 15,000 miles an hour. (laughs) Well, it turns out if you go the same speed of it, it doesn't seem that big of a deal. That's true. (laughs) Um, But And the only reason this makes sense is because the cost of space flight has fallen so much. See Falcon 9, right? Because when space flight, when it was $25,000 per kilogram into orbit, it was cheaper to just fly a new satellite than Mm. it was to fly a repair mission. Mm -hmm. Now the price has fallen. It makes sense to send refueling missions. Um, If something goes wrong with you, the big fear with James Webb is something goes wrong. right? They've, They've had all kinds of scares around this. It has to work perfectly because there's no way to repair it. 
And that's almost certainly true. Really, it would make no sense to send people there because the cost of sending people there would be more than the cost of just flying sure. another one. Yeah. That and James Webb is insanely delicate. Mm. That heat shield, it's actually lighter than Hubble by half, <laughs> even though it's got a much bigger mirror because it's not a glass mirror. It's this beryllium mirror with gold reflectors because it's made for infrared. It's much, much lighter. And the heat shield is super light. It's this ultra-thin capon material. Right. It's just really, really light. It's also incredibly fragile. The chances of a person being able to work on it without damaging are almost zero. And how effective is it? I mean, uh, it seems crazy to me that they can just put up like a, a you know, a, pe- a, a piece of fabric. Yeah, sunshade. Yeah. And cool off the uh, – how, how much cooling do they get from that? They, they, the operating temperature of the James Webb Space Telescope is 3 degrees Kelvin. I don't know what that means, though. <laughs> three degrees Kelvin is negative 270 degrees Celsius. Oh, wow. So, you know, wear a coat. Okay. And that is with the shield. But That's with the shield. So That's how cold they need to be to be able to operate. But I guess what I want to know is how much without the shield. So, in other words, if they didn't have that shield, how hot would it be? Uh, it would be... the in the tens and twenties depends on how much solar radiation was hitting at the time enough that it would be blind right that the the satellite the the reflector would be too warm all you'd see it'd be like a bright light shining in your face that in and of itself is amazing to me that they can get that amount of heat protection from a very thin film well five of them but yeah yeah okay yeah so uh we're in the period right now, the four weeks since it launched on December 25th. It's going to mm-hmm. take four weeks to get into position and fully deployed. And we're recording this time, only three days after it launched. Yeah, three days after. So we don't so know. It's up. We survived launch. That's a good sign. Yep. So the solar panel deployed, also a good sign. Mm. Uh, the next stage of deployments happen on day five, so a couple of days from now. Mm. Uh, and if any of those deployments go wrong, it's not going to work. And uh, I think you can watch some of this stuff on NASA TV, which is on the internet. Well, all there's no more video of it from now on. But you could watch the launch, though. You can watch the launch, and they put a camera on the second stage of the Ariane 5. It flew on, a, on the European launcher, hmm. and uh, and you saw the solar panel deploy. Hmm. So we actually saw, there's a solar panel. Yeah. Okay, that much worked. And then it flew off. It's gone. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll never be seen again. That uh, hmm. I'm, it's incredibly exciting, and uh, it took an absurd amount of time. And if it can, if it can successfully image galaxies from the first 200 million years of the universe, it will have achieved its goal. But it should be also able to image planets uh, orbiting other stars. Wow, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we'll get to do with James Webb as it grows up and and matures into the vehicle it's capable of being. Well, I can't wait to see what happens. All right. I know we're already an hour, but we have one topic left. Okay. It's the space station. Yes. So it's 2021, soon to be 2022. It's 2022, two days from now. In a couple of days. Yeah. Right? If you watch, listen to this when it first started. So the space station is getting old. First parts flew in 1998. Yeah. Uh, it was planned to be operated until 2024. Wow. Uh, it's been extended to 2026. And they're talking about maybe extending it to 2030. But NASA's not waiting. They've now initiated a project called the Commercial LEO Destinations, of CLD. Essentially, the idea is NASA wants to stop operating space stations. They just want to be a customer on a space station. Interesting. So who's going to operate it? 
So over the, that's the question. They're out there taking bids to see who wants to operate a space. Let station. me guess. So the next, <laughs> the next three years are the sort of development period. Um, they're looking two to four space stations. So is are these going to be international? Like uh, the, that was the good thing about the ISS, right? Because you had all these different countries making parts and pieces and then linking them together and doing science together. I mean, that's a really kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Well, what was important about the International Space Station? Well, there's a few things. One was it was a way for the Americans and the Russians to work together. Yeah. It was a way for other nations like Japan and Canada, who would never fly their own station, to be involved in station operations by paying for a small piece of it. Yeah. You know, Canada built all the arms. Mm -hmm. and in exchange, we get to fly Chris Hadfield and a few other, <laughs> you know, uh, folks <laughs> once in a while, right? Not very many of them, but we do get, that's how we get to have a space program. Yeah. It's a clever idea. It is. These are going to be commercial businesses. So it's up to that business what they want to fly and how they want to fly. Interesting. Um, but there's a strong argument that the International Space Station is too big. That mm. it, it, there's, it's, it, it's you kind don't of get target. a lot of benefits as you increase the size. It's hard to find stuff. It's, it's tough to keep organized. Better to have more smaller space stations. Also, do the materials the age out? Absolutely. So like, yeah. yeah. I mean, space junk is a problem. You know, they get pocked well, with. They, we've taken some damage, yeah. without a doubt. We're seeing cracking on the oldest components of the space station, wow. mostly the Russian components. Wow. So the space station will wear out. Yeah. Now, some of the parts are newer, and so they're not needing to be replaced as soon. And this is a question of should they take apart the space station mm. and you keep some parts and fly them separately, put new control modules in? Like, oh, those are all possibilities. Keep it as a museum for space tourism. Well, Unless, I wish they would have done that with me or two, but yeah, as the long bottom as it's line safe. is, yeah, it's not safe yeah. as it decays, right? It'll become more and more dangerous yeah. over time. And so this is a process now to evaluate, are there teams that could fly a space station? Yeah. So would you like to talk about a few of the teams? Well, I'm thinking SpaceX is on the list. They are, but let's start with Axiom. Okay. So Axiom is a company uh, founded by some ex-NASA folks and Boeing Space Station folks. So folks that worked on the, the International Space Station, mm -hmm. guys like Michael uh, Safradini and uh, and Cam Gaffigarian, these are folks that helped run the ISS and build the ISS. Mm. And so they have permission already. But their goal is to build their own space station. And they've started this even before CLD, before the NASA initiative. Okay. And it's called Axiom. All right. And what they want to do is actually build it on the International Space Station. So they want to oh, add components to the International Space Station and until they get to Component 4, which should, they should then be able to fly on its own. It's the Roslyn compiler of space stations. Yeah, in a way. They, they, they haven't got enough funding yet, uh, but they have, one of the ways they're, they're making money is they are flying tourists to the space station. Mm. So AX-1, which is the first Axiom tourism flight, which has a group of, surprise, billionaires on it, <laughs> um, four of them are going, supposed to go to the space station in February 2022. It'll probably get bumped because there's um, scheduling problems, yeah. but they're going to fly on a Crew Dragon, and uh, that's the beginning of Axiom Space starting to make enough money to start flying components. They are now building Axiom Hub, the first module. Wow. Um, it's being built by Tails Alina, which is the same folks who built International Space Station modules. Okay. And it's supposed to go to the space station in 2023. Wow. Uh, it may be late, but it's the first start. And that would also be, a, that'll initially be used as a place for tourists. Hmm. So it has its own observation component and so forth. So now they can do more tourism because they have their own docking port and they have their own 
and they have their own space mm. for people to hang out so they could handle more tourism. But then they'll add a, a second module to extend the hab further and then uh, a, a couple of lab modules and then finally a power module. Mm. Once it has that power module, it's all solar panels, it can detach from the International Space Station and become its own space station. Wow. So that's one approach. Okay. Who else? Blue Origin. Of course. Jeff Bezos's company. Yeah. So Bezos has teamed up with a group of companies, Sierra Space, who've been, Sierra Space has done a lot of stuff in space over the years. Well, actually, maybe we should talk a little about, remember Bigelow Aerospace? Uh, the name rings a bell. That's uh, Robert Bigelow, who's a hotelier, billionaire. Yeah, you know, we talked about that during one of the space geek outs. Yeah. He makes, a, he did inflatable modules. He wanted to build yeah. space stations in the 90s. He flew two test articles, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, that are still up there, by the way. Hmm. Uh, and his big module is called the BA-660 or BA-330, these great big inflatable modules. In fact, he did build BEAM, which is the experimental module that's on the International Space Station. Hmm. It's a small inflatable module that's mounted to the station, hmm. and uh, it's basically being used as a closet. <laughs> Bigelow Aerospace essentially shut down during the pandemic, and they have not restarted. So they may be dead. Wow. Uh, the company may be gone. I mean, it's the, the trials and tribulations of billionaires. But um, the inflatable technology, it's in public domain now. Wow. So Sierra builds these things called life modules, which are inflatable modules very much like the ones Bigelow spaces. They're about 300, uh, 300 cubic meters. Now, these aren't made out of, huge. you know, kiddie pool plastic, obviously. Nope. Uh, Kevlar, Kevlar. And, other, and other materials that are in some ways more impact resistant than the aluminum. Interesting. Well, because they bounce, so, right? I mean, stuff can bounce yeah. off it. They have flexibility. They're not likely to puncture. Yeah. So Blue Origin's proposal combines Sierra Space's uh, existing experience going into space and their inflatable technology. They also have their own vehicle that's about to start flying to the space station called Dream Chaser, mm -hmm. which is another cargo uh, mission, to build a space station called Orbital Reef. Okay. Uh, the... This space station will be built around the new Glenn launcher, which we talked about earlier. That's Blue Origin's seven-meter rocket, the very, very large rocket, yeah. which has a – so the core module that would be flown by new Glenn would be over six meters in diameter. Huh. This is much bigger than the International Space Station because the International Space Station had to fly on the shuttle, right? right. The shuttle can only handle so – it could only handle so wide. So the International Space Station module is only 4.2 meters in diameter. Mm. So these would be 6.3 meters in diameter, okay. quite a bit bigger. Yep. Uh, and so the design is that you have a core module. This is 6.3 meter module. And then you would have multiple docking ports on it. You attach onto it uh, these inflatable modules and other modules, depending on what you want to okay. do. So the idea behind Orbital Reef is to build like this business park in space. Oh, boy. It's an interesting idea. Yeah, it is. Um, and so the sort of basic configuration would be – a. Core, the, one of the core modules is about 300 cubic meters of space. For comparison, the International Space Station is about 900 cubic meters total. Mm. So one of these modules would be much bigger than any module on the space station. Okay. It would be 300. The inflatable is also 300 cubic meters. So you're getting up to a lot of space already, plus a logistics module and a resupply module. So roughly four flights, you have a working space station. The inflatable modules, though, I, I imagine wouldn't be inflated until they got to space, right? That's right. So they fit in the fairing. They fit. And then they need to be outfitted. Yeah. So they make everything collapsible inside it, but there's going to need to be some work on the yeah. inside to get it done. Interesting. Um, it's cool. My favorite part of this whole design 
is because it, of course it's dependent on New Glenn, which is that BE4 engine mm. problem again. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also talking about that perhaps the Vulcan could be substituted for New Glenn because it could handle a six meter payload fairing as well. But it's also dependent on the BE4, so that's a problem. Mm. But another company that signed on to Orbital Reef is a company called Genesis Engineering. Okay. And Genesis Engineering has been proposing for a while a single person spacecraft as an alternative to wearing a spacesuit to do a, a an EVA. Mm. So if you need to go outside the space station to do work on it, right now you have to put on either the Russian Orland spacesuit or the NASA EVA spacesuit. Mm-hmm. It takes at least two people to do this, one to wear the suit, one to help them get into yeah. it. They have to spend several hours pre-breathing oxygen because the pressure in the suit is substantially lower than the pressure in the station. Sure. So you go to pure oxygen. Um, and so it takes a long time to get all this done. Genesis' uh, spacecraft idea is basically like a little can <laughs> that you can climb into that's at, at, that's at station atmosphere. <laughs> so you don't have to pre-breathe or anything. You just get in it. You close it up. You disconnect. you got little thrusters. And you've got remote control arms so you can go to where you need to go to station, do the work, come back, click on. It's like hop in and go. That sounds good. It's a really a, co- a cool idea. Yeah. Not as nimble as an astronaut in an EVA suit. No, but I mean, certainly much more comfortable for the astronaut and easier and quicker. I also argue that if you can get it geared up that quickly, that when you have tools getting lost or yeah. heaven forbid a space uh, that an actual astronaut, you know, fell away from the space station and couldn't get back for whatever reason, you could hop in this thing, go and retrieve right. it, right? Like. This just seems like a good it's idea. Good for emergencies. It's my only part of, of Orbital Reef I think is really cool. Like hmm. Axiom seems like the most compelling thing. Hmm. It's built the same style. They kind of know what they're doing. It's going to happen over time. That's cool. Orbital Reef, okay, if New Glenn starts flying, this will become more compelling. But hmm. so far, not much showing on there. Wow. It's not the only proposal. There are more. Yeah. Uh, the Star Lab is the Lockheed Martin and NanoRacks proposal. Um, it's a much smaller space station they'd be looking about as launch a single on a single uh, vulcan flight their nanoracks has proposed that you do the maintenance on the space station using nano robots so little cube sats that have uh, manipulators and so forth so you can do remote maintenance hmm. they're very much on uh stations that don't have to be manned all the time that they could go up do some work and then go back down and they could and they're still uh, reliable enough to operate on their hmm. own because one of the reasons that NASA wants multiple stations is that there's different missions that can be done that are not compatible with each other. In the early designs of the International Space Station, they talked about putting a centrifuge on the space station. They ended up canceling it. And one of the reasons was it was going to mess up all the microgravity experiments they were doing. Hmm. And we need to do more experiments experiments for artificial gravity. Hmm. And, and a centrifuge is really the only way to do it. Yeah. So... Building dedicated space stations that you can then do certain class of experiments on is important. And so yeah. the whole concept of CLD, that there'll be multiple stations available that can do different payloads and different tasks, is compelling. Mm. It does make sense to continue to do that maturation. One more proposal. Okay. And it's SpaceX uh-huh. and it's Starship. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's why you wanted to leave Starship for the end. Yes, because there's a Starship solution for a space station as well. But let's talk about Starship in general. Okay. All right. So you had to have watched the the madness that was Starship development. Yes. Um, the last being SN15, which was in May of 2021. SN15 was the Starship that stuck the landing. Right. Right. They had a bunch that landed aggressively. <laughs> 
that hit the ground hard and they improve the design. I mean, what Elon's doing is iterating rapidly, right? He's, he's pr applying agile practices to spacecraft design where he's manufacturing them fast. So literally as one comes down and makes little fragments of aluminum, the next one's sitting on ready to go to the test stand to, to learn more. From right. Uh, after SN15, they stopped flying. They And the reason is that it was now time to start building Booster. And so they've been learning to build Booster and the launch platform for Booster ever since. Mm -hmm. And again, you've probably seen this footage because they've actually stacked Starship on top of Booster and made the tallest rocket ever, admittedly, just a test article. Nothing, none of those components ever flew. Mm -hmm. They've also been maturing the heat shield for Starship. Mm -hmm. All these previous test flights... They didn't, they didn't need a heat shield. They weren't going fast enough. Mm. The next expected flight, which is going to supposedly be early next year, 2022, is a test flight of both Booster and Starship. Wow. Neither one of which will be recovered, although they'll be doing a bunch of tests. It's a test article, right? They're going to fly the Booster for two and a half minutes. Yeah. And it's going to have enough fuel to turn around, fly back close to... The, the landing site, but land in the ocean, which is to say, be destroyed. Hopefully land soft enough that it looks good, but it'll be damaged by the impact one way or the other. Yeah. The starship would then go effectively into orbit, but not complete an orbit. It would get up to as far as orbit needs to go and then start a reentry procedure to land in the water near Hawaii. Yeah. So that would be a test of, can we handle orbital velocities? Does the heat shield stay intact? Does the booster actually work with all of those engines? They're talking about 31 engines running at the same time, and that's just an amazing amount of noise, stress, and, and vibration. Uh, and then the maneuverability part. Then to uh, attempt a re-entry without burning up, to maintain control, and to actually do the same maneuver that SM-15 does, which is to belly flop towards the Earth, then fire the engine at the last moment, and land on the tail, admittedly in the The ocean. fact that SN-15 took off and landed within, what, five minutes? Something like that, It's yeah. just... Insanely cool. Yes, it's it looked astonishing. Yeah, it looked like um, like it was done with graphics, you know, CGI. Yeah, it, it looks CGI. Here's what here's some of the secrets that have sort of been revealed over the time. There were three engines on the Starship for SN15. They were none of them were running at full power. Mm. The rocket was way too light. It's only partially fueled. There's not that much on yeah. it because the Raptor engines having problems running at full performance. Mm -hmm. They burn themselves up. Uh, it's a very, very high performance engine, and it's very tough to make it work. Mm -hmm. And in and these days, Elon's now talking solely about the next generation Raptor, mm -hmm. the Raptor Two engine. Wow. So they've come, they've learned enough about building Raptors to make an entire uh, version different enough that they're calling it Raptor Two to be able to run it at full power. And therein lies the real problem: its engines can. These are incredibly high performance engines, and running them at full power is very challenging. Mm -hmm. And so they have to learn enough to actually be able to run it properly mm. and so we're waiting to see the, how the engines go now at the same time the flight that they want to do this this not suborbital but an orbital test flight uh requires faa authorization and so there's been a full review going on that's still going mm. on um uh, as to whether or not that flight's going to be safe when that booster fires it'll be the most powerful rocket ever fired before i think they're grossly underestimating the amount of violence that's going to occur when that engine those engines fire the, the chances of it exploding on the pad are not trivial. And if it does explode right. on the pad, it's going to take out a lot. 
it's going to destroy that very expensive launch tower they've built. Yeah. Right. That launch tower is not only for holding up the rocket when it takes off. It's supposed to catch the rocket when it lands, <laughs> which can we just stop for a moment and think about the idea of catching, catching a rocket, a rocket. <laughs> but to save weight by not putting legs on the booster. That was the, the point was to get rid of the legs. Yeah. They're actually going to have the, the booster hover beside the tower and a pair of arms come out and grab the rocket. Wow. That also helps them stage back onto the pad to get ready for a second flight mm. and so forth. Like, there's a lot of good here, but boy, you're talking some tricky stuff. It's also supposed to catch Starship eventually. Now that they're going to test either one of these things on these first flights, mm. but that's the progress they're making. But I'm talking about when all of those engines fire, the shockwaves that hit the ground and bounce back up may well rip that rocket apart. It's a Don't you hard think they've done the math, calculate. though? I mean... You would think, but it's a hard thing to calculate. Yeah. When when the first shuttle flew in 1981, it blew down miles of fence. It ripped par apart the flame hmm. trench. Like it did a lot of damage. They learned and improved it, hmm. but I don't know if they know enough about the amount of violence that's going to occur when all those engines. Are. And even Elon admits, like we don't know if it'll get off the pad or not. Hmm. It'll be considered a success if it does. Wow. Right. They've done as much calculating as they can, but there's a certain amount of chaos in the system. But understand, the goal of Starship is a fully reusable spacecraft. You pay for fuel and maintenance. You don't throw anything away. Huh. Falcon 9 with its reusable booster took us from the $15,000, $20,000 a kilogram down to $1,800 a kilogram. Yeah. Starship could get us down to under a dollar a kilogram. Wow. Like, Suddenly, the cost of a flight into space would be the cost of a first-class ticket to London. Wow. Like, that's what we're talking that's about. That's pretty amazing if that happens. And then we get into this whole business of now it, it should be able to lift 100 metric tons, way more payload than you need for traditional things. But there's all kinds of things you can do from there. And, it, and if you can refuel the spacecraft in orbit, mm. then you can kick off a whole other line of things. We haven't talked about the moon at all. Mm. But SpaceX won the, the the human landing contract for landing on the moon mm. with Starship. So NASA is starting to take Starship seriously. They've now been out to Boca Chica to the site where they're doing the testing on Starship. Mm. I've started to read some papers from NASA scientists talking about what they could do with Starship. Wow. And and one of the parts would be to start building an on-orbit uh, refueling center mm. to build a kind of space station that just stores fuel. <laughs> wow. And so... Now you have a contract to fill that with fuel. Do you fly it from the surface of the earth or do you fly it from the moon? Like, who cares? It's just a place to put fuel so that other vehicles can get into orbit and refuel and go further. Yeah. And one of the things you could do with a spacecraft that large is make it into a space station. Just fly it into orbit. It's already a station. Yeah. It has so much space in it. You could do your experiments. You could qualify for the CLD contract with the amount of space that's mm. inside of Starship if you set it up correctly leave it to elon musk to to uh, go one extra step to uh humiliate everybody else <laughs> you imagine you know the the existing plan for the payload bay of starship admittedly it's not a finished rocket mm. is a hundred is a thousand cubic meters it's bigger than the international space wow station. crazy so one flight you've got a full-size giant space station essentially and then if you want you can bring it back right and land it so Mind it's a, blowing. It's an interesting possibility. Mind blowing, and an hour and twenty two minutes down the tubes. <laughs> you cannot. I hope get it was that. fun for folks. I'm, oh, it was fun I for me. It, I'm so excited. Yeah, I can like, tell. There's so many good things happening. 
I mean, I, I hope New Glenn comes to fruition. It would be useful to have a new competitive rocket mm. going into orbit. Um, I, I hope Starship works, but still, we're still not sure it's, it's actually going to work, but we'll see the next round of experiments this year. Well, and you should definitely uh, subscribe to Richard's uh, Twitter account at Rich Campbell. And uh, I'm sure you're going to be sending out, Richard, a whole bunch of uh, updates as things come in. Oh, for sure. And, uh, you know, I I took these notes all year long, yeah. as I usually do. Yeah. And this uh, is the first to publish, second to record. We still have to put the Energy Geek out in the can, but that'll come a little later. Right. And then uh, folks will get a full my full brain dump on at least these topics. Yep. Anyway. All right. Richard, uh, pleasure as always. It was great. Fun, yeah, huh? Yeah, lots of fun. I told you this one was a good eat. That's yeah, a good one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I